This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. There's something about finishing a series that's, uh, maybe it's just me, I don't know, that's... uh, there's, there's joy and there's a bit of sadness to leave a teaching that you spend so much time in. And by God's grace, we will continue to go back to it again and again and again to continue to dig and see and understand um, this truly remarkable sermon. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not hyperbole to say this is one of the greatest sermons ever preached, if not the greatest. Um, and, and we'll see it's not just because Jesus preached it but because of what he actually preached. And we've spent now, this is week 35. Um, and, and had I told you in the beginning we were going to do a 35-part series, you might have said, <laughs> and maybe fallen out of your seats. Um, but I pray now that you see that if anything, we didn't, we didn't stay long enough. I mean, the depth, you know, this, I, I've heard this sermon series preached, and I've read commentaries on it where it's been made very practical, do's and don'ts, and it's become ethical. Um, we've certainly heard passages from this sermon used by, uh, by politicians and, and, and political movements to put forth a, a moral agenda. Um, I have personally heard it preached in this church years ago as a means, as a way to be saved, uh, as the things you do to get saved rather than the, thing, the, the life you live in a safe state. Um, all of those we have not seen in the past 35 weeks. We've seen something quite different, um, not only in what he was teaching and how he was teaching it, but what we're going to do is we're going to step back today and we're going to look back on the entire sermon. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm going to re-preach 35 weeks, but as we take a few pieces here and there, we'll see that this that Matthew ends exactly where he wants us to end, and that is a redirection of everything that was said back to the preacher, not me, Christ, back to the one who was teaching. And what makes it so extraordinary is that at the very core and the heart of the entire sermon from the very beginning in Matthew chapter 5 all the way to the judgments we find in 7, the whole sermon is directing the listener and the listeners over the centuries to Christ, to himself. To the one preaching the sermon. Uh, David Lloyd-Jones makes this point in the context of the whole New Testament. And he said, this is what makes the New Testament such a unique book. And gives uniqueness to the teaching of our Lord. With all other teachers that the world has ever known, the important thing is the teaching. But here is a case in which the teacher is more important even than what he taught. That Christ is the focus. Now, it's not... It's not uncommon that we come across, I know I have in my life, teachers, preachers that have that that, that woo factor where the way they talk, what they say, the teachings, they draw you in. And so it's, we can identify with people like this in our lives. Some of you have had those teachers that just, they redefine a classroom. Um, We're told here that those listening that day were amazed, astonished. And the term in the Greek goes way beyond you being moved emotionally 
or wooed by a particular speaker or a teacher. The word in the Greek, it's ekplaso. And, and it, it means, I love this, it means to strike, drive out, or cast with a blow. In other words, they're, they're struck with amazement. They, they've been beaten with astonishment. Um, they are, uh, they're amazed in a state that, unlike they've ever heard. So it goes way beyond saying, this, this man, he's a good teacher. What he's saying is good. It's, it's, a, it's a state of uh, other awe. Um, and that makes sense. And, and I, I want to show you from just looking back briefly that they were amazed. They were amazed by what he taught, the teachings themselves. They were amazed in how he taught the teachings. They were amazed at the authority that he claimed in the teachings. And they were amazed by the love that was displayed as a result of the teachings. And so by God's grace, you will have ears to be patient with me on the 35th sermon of this series. To hear the what, the how, the authority, and the love. They first were amazed by what he taught. The teachings themselves could easily be considered teachings that were out of this world, right? And in the most literal sense, right? They were teachings from heaven by God. And so they were otherworldly teachings. They were extraordinary. The teachings in themselves, the particulars that we saw, going all the way back to the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and working our way through the sermon, the teachings in particular were extraordinary. And it's one of the reasons that it took us 35 weeks, so you say, no, that's just you, and you take way too long. And, and I would love to say that were the case. Um, the, the truth be told, I tried to bite off bigger pieces. And every time, God humbled me saying, too big a bite, too big a bite. And I would get back down to a portion that I could handle in order to teach you. The breadth of the sermon, the scope of the sermon... Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, to the end here of his speaking in Matthew seven twenty-seven is the scope is extraordinary. Um, in fact, it's so broad, it's so big, the sermon being preached in three chapters. I, I had a hermeneutics professor, and he was brutal. And he would have us give these, you know, 10-minute sermonettes. And, and he wanted us to take a passage, and he wanted us to get to the core of the passage, the central points... And the first, I'll never forget, the first fellow student who went up to do her piece, at the end of it, you know, and this is seminary, so there are people there who are pursuing Christ, and, you know, we're, we're a bit further along in education and academics, and so he says to her, the only comment he says, what's your point? What's your point? And the whole class is like, this is the first person that went. The whole class is like, Mah. right? And he, and he hammered her for taking too big a bite. He said, you took way too big. He goes, I want to know what the central piece is. Um, everybody else after her, they made, made, they made sure they didn't take too big a bite and they had the point to make from the scriptures. Well, I can hear him chastising Christ. If Christ had done the assignment and gave the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, what's your point? And then Christ would smite him on the spot or something. I mean, he, he was kind of mean. I can see that happening. The point being that this sermon, if you read it carefully and you've been listening over the... It covers almost every facet of life. In three chapters, the, the, the scope of it is extraordinary. And we start, and if you start right with the Beatitudes, he reveals that the poor in spirit will not be trampled into oblivion, but will actually inherit the earth. And he goes through those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness will be filled with righteousness. Those who show mercy will be shown mercy. He shows that there is a blessed way to live. 
You know, we, we're in this perpetual dialogue in our culture about blessings and happiness. And he starts right off saying, this is how you live. This is the blessed life. And then he goes into telos and mission. And he says, you are to be the salt and light of the world. So he gives us our purpose in life to go out and, and to minister and to love and to serve and to share the gospel of grace. And that's just in the first few verses. And then he goes into great detail on how we're to relate to one another. He deals with murder and anger and lust and adultery and keeping a covenant and making vows and serving for the right reason and not taking your brother to court. So he talks about this is how you're supposed to live. Life in community. Life with your husband. Life with your wife. Life with your children. Great dialogue. He tells us how to deal with our enemies. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's all in chapter 5. And then he goes into chapter 6. And for those of you who recall, he then begins to talk in great detail as how we are to relate to God. How we are to pray and fast and give without being hypocrites. He said, this is how you engage in right relationship and right worship and right faith. And if that isn't extraordinary enough, he covers the blessings of life, relationships with one another, whether it be husband or wife or children or co-worker, relating to God. He then goes into self-examination and stress and anxiety. And how you you make your way through that. And he gives us this great assurance that if we know Christ, he's our father. And he knows us and our needs and he hears us and he answers. And if that weren't enough, he talks about judgment and self-examination and asking and seeking and knocking. And then, of course, the past several weeks, he wraps up an eternal dialogue. A forever and ever where you're going to be and how you, you can know where you're going to be based upon the life you live now. In other words, in three chapters, Jesus Christ, you could go back and take the, the, the top bestsellers from the New York Times list over the past 20 years from all of our what we now call life coaches. Take the best books over 20 years, all the books that cover all the areas of living well and building vibrant relationships and marriage and contracts and law and healthy families and healthy neighborhoods and healthy working environments, mental health, religion, philosophy, the future. Pick every single area. And Jesus Christ comes along and he deals with all those areas succinctly, simply, with truths that pierce the human heart. And he does it in such a way that you can understand it. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, live in accordance with it. The scope is extraordinary. In fact, any attempt to move through the Sermon on the Mount quickly is foolish. Any attempt to take a four-part series, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, and, and, a, and a summary, would, would decimate the breadth of this sermon. So they were amazed at the, the things that were covered. They were amazed. But they were also amazed at the counterculture nature of the teachings themselves. The teachings were the opposite of what they had been taught and what they knew or thought to be true according to their sin nature. Everything in the sermon, and we saw this, and I could tell oftentimes by your reaction, everything in the sermon is upside down. Everything's backwards in the sermon. Everything that he says is the opposite of what you think he should say or what he's going to say. The entire sermon we see is other-centered and God-glorifying. It's the exact opposite, right? The teachings that we have, the teachings that we like, it's about us and it's about our glory. It's about self and self-glorification. And this entire sermon renders itself to putting others above yourself and bringing honor and glory to God. 
In fact, he started very early in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So in our fallen world, where we look at people, especially members of the opposite sex, to devour them, to consume them, which is what lust is, we're consuming someone, Christ turns the teaching upside down. A teaching that was, was certainly not popular in his day, and how much more so now, where lust is not only advocated, but it's promoted. How much more so now? Where he comes along and says, you need to look at other people, especially members of the opposite sex, not to consume them, not to devour them, but as as those created in the image of God with intrinsic value because God created them. A few verses later, he said, you have heard that it was said, love your enemy and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies... And pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, I don't need to even give you an historical picture of that. That is purely countercultural for all of human history. Why? What are we taught to do with our enemies? Fight back. Right? Even if you're not taught that, the sin nature says, fight back. An eye for an eye. Get them back. Execute pain. And if you were raised like me, not by my parents, don't get this wrong, but if you were raised in the culture like me, it's not only inflict pain, but you inflict more pain they inflicted upon you. That's true justice. That's your justice. And then Christ comes along and he says, what? Love your enemies, not hate them, and pray for them? Why? Because we should be in Christ. We should have an ultimate concern for their well-being before a holy God. Because if we truly believe that judgment day that Christ talks about so much in Matthew 7 is real, then those people will stand before a holy God. And their judgment, their punishment, will be infinitely worse than we could possibly imagine or want for our worst enemy. And so he he redefines how we see people that persecute us and how we see people that hate us. Now, you read a passage like that and people come to your mind. I don't know who they are, but you know who they are. Very likely someone you work with, probably a colleague, maybe a boss, maybe a member of your family that you'll be having dinner with during the Christmas season. Will you hear Christ and see them in the upside-down kingdom way? Maybe you'll see them and you'll be praying for them. Maybe you'll see them as that soul who will stand before the Creator and hear God say, Away from me, you worker of iniquity, and it will break your heart. Certainly not what you expect to hear. I've often thought, I was reading to Joshua a few weeks back of the story of Saul of Tarsus before he became the Apostle Paul. And I often thought, how many in the early church, how many were praying for Paul? I mean, this man was fervently persecuting the church. How many saints in the early church prayed for Paul to be saved? And his prayers were, those prayers were answered. And how many of us have been blessed by the service of the Apostle Paul? We'll know. We'll find out. I mean, eventually we're going to say, oh, you were praying and you were praying and you were praying for your worst enemy. Turned out to be a great blessing for us as well. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And we spent, we spent an entire Sunday on this. I mean... <laughs> He's saying your whole life, your whole life, your words, your thoughts, your actions, every moment of every day are to be lived in such a way that God is glorified. Not you. 
that God's name is lifted up, not your name. That he is praised and honored. Even in how he taught us to pray, this is revealed in Matthew 6. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we, our lives, counter teaching that his name is lifted up, not ours. That his will is done and not ours. That his kingdom is manifest and not our kingdom. Upside down in every capacity. So the opposite of the teachings then, where the scribes and Pharisees taught self-glorification. So the opposite, of, I mean, the teachings today, you want to talk about a, a contemporary movement that, that transcends time, first century to now? <laughs> How much of the time do we spend promoting our rights, our freedoms, our desires? My desires first, my way. So the sermon amazed them. First, in its breadth, the scope, and the specific teachings. They were all out of this world. They were all backwards. But there was another thing that amazed them. The second point is they were amazed on how he taught. Say, well, what do you mean? How he actually spoke? Yes. In order to get this, we got we to gotta do a, a, a back to the future type time transport. We got to sit on that hillside. And we got to remember who was speaking at that moment in time. All right, this is the very beginning of the ministry. So he hasn't engaged in these miraculous miracles. He hasn't, you know, entered Jerusalem. He hasn't prophesied the temple. He hasn't done these things yet. So this is early in the ministry. And this man, this Jesus, the Galilean, I mean, this is a blue-collar, uneducated, ill-trained teacher. He wasn't affiliated with any of the, of the notable rabbis at the time. He wasn't a member of any of the particular groups. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. He wasn't a Zealot. He wasn't an Essene. He wasn't, there was no attachment to his name. He was the son of Mary and Joseph, a carpenter. And yet, he taught in a most extraordinary way. And what he taught pierced the human heart. He taught, Christ taught with firsthand knowledge. For those of you who have taken a really good history course, a good history teacher will rely upon what we call primary sources, where you will go back and you will read what the people wrote at that time, not what people wrote about what people wrote or said or did at that time. You'll get your hands on primary sources, primary documents. This, in these verses today, it said, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In other words, he taught as someone who was there in the beginning. He taught as someone who has not, not only knew about these things, but had experienced them for all of human history. But he's a man. He's a 30-year-old man, 29, 30-year-old man, ill-educated, and yet he's teaching these things with absolute authority. And we see that there was confidence and not arrogance. We've got to be really careful. Christ was not teaching arrogantly because he was sinless. But he was teaching confidently. And his language was absolute and it was utterly extreme. 
And I think one of the reasons that pastors struggle preaching and teaching this sermon is because the language is so extreme. It's black and white. It's absolute. From the very beginning, in the Beatitudes, he makes several absolute claims without hesitation or apology. He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to, present tense, as if it's an affirmative now, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. He says, those who mourn will be comforted, absolute. The meek will inherit the earth. The pure in heart will see God. Bold, absolute claims made by this carpenter, this blue-collar laborer from Galilee. And it runs through the entire sermon. I mean, there are several examples that run through it. I mean, but even the end, even the end of the sermon, the last few weeks, I, the last several weeks as we've been looking at Matthew chapter 7 and, and the claims to eternity, heaven and hell, they're absolute claims. Christ said, you enter through the narrow gate, you have life. You enter through the broad gate, and it's death. He says, if you're a tree that bears bad fruit, you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. If you're a tree that bears good fruit, you'll live forever. Absolute claims. Not, I think, or I've heard, or I've been told. He's saying, this is how it is. He said, if you know me, you'll have life. If you build your house on the rock, it will withstand the storm to come. And if it's on the sand, it'll be utterly decimated. And so he comes along, not only with these teachings that were amazing, but the way that he taught, absolutely amazing. There was no doubt or question in his statements. Did you notice... In the sermon, it lacked source citing. I mean, he doesn't quote people. He does, actually, but not in the contemporary sense. I mean, I, I don't... Um... I don't know how many sermons that I've heard and books that I've read where there's a fever pitch to quote men. I mean, you can listen to a sermon and hear five, six, seven, eight preachers and theologians quoted in a single sermon. Or you read a book, and I, and I know why. To get published today, not only do you have to have the quotes, multiple quotes, with that, that long citing and the end notes or the footnotes, however they, they, they do it in their particular writing style, but you've got to have the cover of the book with all the prominent names in the back to substantiate the book. It's all source citing. It's all the experts, right? I mean... By that standard, this sermon would be pathetic. It would be a bad sermon. Because not only does Jesus not quote the experts and the rabbis, when he does quote them, it's to say they're wrong. So he says, oh yeah, I'll quote you, and then I'll overturn what you said. I mean, the prevalent theme throughout, right, of the contemporary gurus, he said, you have heard that it was said for the sole purpose of overturning what they said, but I say to you. You've heard this rabbi say, but I say to you. you heard this expert say, but I say to you. The Talmud says, the Mishnah says, but I say to you. And so he does quote, but the only reason he quotes is to overturn what they actually said. Rather than appealing to the experts or the rabbis, he appeals to the law of God. He goes directly back to the Bible. And he uses the word of God as his primary source. And this was so different than the teachings of the day. By the time that Christ came on the scene, there were a few pieces of literature, the Talmud and the Mishnah, two of the prominent ones at that time, 
where they had taken oral tradition of the rabbis for the past 300 years minimum, but it goes back even further than that, the, the oral traditions of the rabbis had become written. And so they actually made their way into codified documents. And so when the rabbis would teach, they would cite the Talmud. They would cite rabbis by name. In fact, we get this great illustration, and I've alluded to this before, but it's the best illustration. In Matthew chapter 19, the, the, the Pharisees and scribes, they come to Jesus. They're, they're trying to trap him. At this point in time, they're thoroughly irritated by him. I mean, they do not like this man. They don't want him around anymore. So they're trying to get him. And so they pose this question on marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19. And there were, there were two primary schools of thought. They come up to him, and the, the Shamites... Had, which was a, was a rabbi and a, and a school of thought from that rabbi that dealt with divorce. And essentially, both drawing back to Deuteronomy 24, both the, the Hillelians and the Shamites on their interpretation of divorce and remarriage. And, and the Shamites came along and they said, listen, it is only in the case of adultery, and, and they had another piece in there of, of if the husband failed to provide the wife with food, clothing, or material uh, uh, intercourse... Whereas the school of Hillel, teaching at the exact same time that any justification, any reason for divorce was valid by the man to the woman. And then had to issue a certificate. In fact, one of the rabbis, Akiba, Rabbi Akiba, went so far as to say, a man may divorce his wife if he finds another fairer than she. Both parties appealing to Deuteronomy 24, both schools of thought coming out of that, and they try to trap Christ in Matthew 19, and Jesus, as he did, he blows right by both rabbis, right by both schools of thoughts, right by Deuteronomy 24, and he goes back to Genesis. And he goes back to the foundation of marriage, established by God, that he said, let no man tear asunder, tear it apart. And so... Instead of appealing to rabbis or tradition or the Talmud or the Mishnah, he goes back to the primary source, the word of God, and he claims the right and authority to interpret it. It's unbelievable. This carpenter from Nazareth said, you have heard that it was said by all these experts, by all these rabbis, by Hillel and Shammai and Aqaba, but I say to you, this is what's true. And so they were rightly astonished by the teachings themselves. They were, they were extraordinary. They were rightly astonished by how they were being taught. Christ was, was teaching them with absolute confidence in absolute language. So there was, no, there was no ambiguity to these absolute claims throughout the entire sermon. But I want you to notice also they were astonished and amazed by the authority that he claims in the sermon as he's teaching Radical claims, and we looked at some of these. Anybody there that day, sitting on that hillside, anyone who was not amazed by what he was teaching or amazed by how he was teaching it, had to have been amazed by what he was saying about himself in the teachings. Because he was claiming things that no man other than God had the right to claim. In fact, in Matthew chapter 27, they ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of David? And he says, it is as you say. And they said, do we need anything else? Kill him. <laughs> Blasphemy. Kill him. He claims that authority in this sermon. And so they were rightly amazed by it. When I preach to you, 
When I preach God's word, it is to proclaim the gospel of grace through his word that he might be glorified. John the Baptist, in John, in John, the gospel of John chapter 3, John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that he increases. If I preach a sermon that is right, then I disappear and God is glorified. Then I fall away and Christ is magnified. But that's not what Christ did. In this sermon, as he taught and as he preached, he rose. He was glorified. He was magnified and lifted up. And he did it intentionally. Starting with the simple saying that was repeated throughout Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus claims the authority to correctly interpret the sacred scriptures of the Jews. He says, I, I know what you've heard, but I'm saying to you, this is what it really means. Not only in application, but in motivation. I'm going to give you the practical outworking of this, and I'm going to give you the spirit behind the law. And I'm going to refute the teachers that you've heard now for centuries, because the masses were misled. Why were they misled? Because the teachers were misled. How simple is it to take a class of 30 people and leave them utterly and thoroughly confused for the rest of their life if the teacher does not know what they're teaching. How many of you have had that happen? You've taken a class with the full expectation of leaving that class better edified than when you started, only to leave totally confused. Why? Because the teacher didn't know what they were talking about. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in their faces, in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Why? The blind were leading the blind. The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law did not understand these kingdom things. And so they were teaching it wrongly, and the people were hearing it wrongly, and therefore they were all misled. The Pharisee Nicodemus, when he went to Jesus secretly in the middle of the night, inquiring of the kingdom and of salvation. Remember what Jesus says to him? I mean, it's, it had to have been a cutting statement for Nicodemus. He, said, he says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. I mean, it was, it was basic salvation. You must be what? Remember, he says, how does a man enter a mother's womb a second time? He says, you must be born again. You don't get this? Jesus comes along and he says, I say to you, I'm declaring absolute authority to interpret this word. I'm declaring absolute authority in how to apply this word. I'm declaring absolute authority over the spirit behind the word. And he does that because we know that he was there from the beginning. He was the one that gave the word to Moses on Mount Sinai. He was the one that spoke to the prophets throughout the ages. It was his voice they heard. So he claims his authority rightly. And the reason they were so amazed, those who were sitting there who did not agree or even understand exactly what he was saying, and maybe did not discern rightly how he was saying it, they got the authority he was claiming. Because they believed, in spite of their being misled, and in spite of the centuries of bad teaching, they believed that the word of God came from God. They believed that. That the scriptures were actually God's word. And therefore, when Christ claims them himself, it means what? That he's claiming to be God. And they got that. And some of them hated it. 
They're saying, wait, the Bible comes from God. And he's saying, yes, exactly. That means you're God. Now you got it. Now you got it. He adds their amazement in this capacity. He says, not only do I give the law, but I fulfill it. And we spent two weeks on this. Matthew 5, 17, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's such a, the statement is so loaded. And I will not, I will not go another hour on this, but it's loaded because in that single statement, he's saying, I have come. And it's, I didn't talk about this several weeks ago, but it's implicit, the I have come. The understanding was come from, not, not from Galilee, not from Bethlehem, not from Nazareth, but I've come from another place, another world. I've come from out of this world, from heaven to earth, to share these things with you. He's, defi- he's claiming divine, divine origin, Christ. He's claiming divine and moral perfection. I fulfilled them. Not a single hero of the faith, then or now, claimed moral perfection. And when Christ says, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets, he's saying, I have done it. I have lived it. Perfectly, without exception. He claims divine origin, moral perfection, and essentially they got, he's saying, I'm the anointed one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of David. The one that all the prophecies have pointed to. That's me. That's me. And he doesn't say it in an ashamed, embarrassed, or or quiet manner. He's boldly declaring that he is God incarnate, the son of man. The one they had all been waiting for. Early in the Beatitudes... He talks about their life being blessed as a result of their suffering for him. I mean, early on, anybody who was listening should have went, wait a minute. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, he said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not because of my father, not because of the law, but because of me. And then, as we saw these last few weeks, he ends the sermon claiming authority over their eternity. He says, those of you who hear my words and obey will be like the man who built his house on the rock. And when the winds blow and the rain comes down and the waters rise, your house won't fall. He says, it's those who know me who will have life with my father. In other words, Jesus Christ comes along in this single sermon for those of us who have ears to ear here. He claims authority over their lives, their law, the interpretation of their laws, their relationships with one another, their relationships with God. He claims himself as the lawgiver, the lawkeeper, the fulfiller of the Old Testament law and prophets, the Messiah, the redeemer, the judge. There's a, what other hat can he grab? And he's either out of his mind or it was true that he has absolute authority over all these things and more. And is it any wonder that Matthew ties all this together by saying the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They were utterly amazed at how he taught, at what he taught, on the authority he claimed when he was teaching. 
as we should be. And I pray you were. I pray that, that over the past 35 weeks, there was a, a, an ongoing astonishment and amazement and awe over the teachings. Because there's a right, a right response to that. Amazement's one. But if we stop there, I mean, if your only response to the Sermon on the Mount or my pathetic sermons on the Sermon on the Mount was astonishment or amazement, then we fell short of why he preached the sermon. Amazement, astonishment, awe is not why he preached the sermon. Certainly a consequence of it. Certainly a result of it. But he preached the sermon so that you would be in amazement and astonished by him. Going back to the original purpose. That you would be amazed and astonished by the work that he would accomplish on the cross for you. And that your amazement and your astonishment would translate to repentance and faith and obedience in following him. That's why he preached the sermon. I asked one of my boys. Why were the people amazed? And out of the mouth of a babe. He said. Well Jesus preached it. Because he preached it. Because it was him. It was him. It was Christ. What he taught, amazing. How he taught it, amazing. Authority claimed, amazing. But he wants the whole teaching to come back to who he is. His love, his sacrifice on the cross for you and for me. So it wouldn't just stay and resonate in amazement. Because there's no saving power in amazement. There's saving power in repentance and belief. They're saving power in following Christ. Last point. To be amazed, truly amazed by his love. Maybe it's just my cold. Is it warm in here? Is it just me? Is it just me? All right. A little fever is good, I guess. The entire New Testament, specifically the Gospels, the amazement of Christ is no big deal. I mean, we see it early here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But it it was not uncommon. The, The response of amazement and astonishment was not an uncommon response to the life of Christ. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 22, when Jesus is teaching about paying taxes to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, the response by the people... The crowd heard this and they were amazed. Same word in the Greek. Pasta. When he was teaching on marriage and resurrection later in Matthew 22, Matthew tells us that when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Struck. A blow to the head. When Jesus entered Jerusalem... At the end of the ministry, at the end, uh, during the Passion Week, he enters, he enters the temple and he clears the, the money changers and the merchants. And we're told in Mark 11 that the chief priests and the teachers of the law began looking for a way to kill him. Why? For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Even as young as a 12 or 13 year old in Luke chapter 2, on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem when Jesus ditches his parents and stays in the temple and begins teaching. Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph found Jesus in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone heard him, young man, 
everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they too were astonished. In other words, amazement and astonishment was not uncommon was not an uncommon response to Jesus Christ for his whole life, going back to when he was a young man in the temple. And this should not surprise us. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us. He lived a sinless life. That would amaze anybody. He was supernaturally endowed with power from on high. He exercised that power in miracles that that were only explained supernaturally. He taught things that no man had ever taught in a way that no man had ever taught. And he pierced hearts with his words like no one else did. He ministered to people purely with no other motive. He listened to people with ears like no one's ever listened. He loved people in a sacrificial agape way like no one ever had. I mean, he lived a life in such a way that astonishment and amazement would be the natural response because of his supernatural life. The fact that Jesus amazed people his whole life should not surprise us at all. But this is still not why he came. It's not why he preached the sermon. It's not why he performed miracles. I mean, he didn't feed the 5,000 and go, hey, what do you think of that? Pretty amazing, pretty amazing. He didn't. That wasn't the purpose. It never was. It wasn't to amaze and awe. It wasn't to, you know, confound the religious leaders. It wasn't to engage in some eternal circus-like act, you know, where people could pay tickets and come and see the show. They were struck with amazement because of who this man is. He didn't come to bring another set of laws. I've heard that and just recently read th- this new teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Not the case. What good would another set of laws do for people who could not follow the first set? Especially in light of them being more difficult. Yeah, those didn't work. Here's another one. Try it. Harder. If anything, we see what Christ revealed pertaining to these laws and we realize how much more we need Christ to do any of this. How desperately wicked the heart of man truly is. So why did Jesus come if not to entertain us? Why did he come if not to amaze and astonish and strike us with awe? Why? He came to bring and execute the good news. He came to proclaim the gospel of grace and to execute it so that the gospel of grace would not only be heard, but then lived out and we could receive it in full. He came to do the work of saving sinners by grace, to offer us, to offer you, to offer me, to offer of all those who hear these teachings and say to ourselves, impossible, possibility. I cannot to say I can in him. To turn with his teachings and with his life and his re- to turn everything upside down for us. I mean, haven't you been turned upside down since you came to a saving grace in Christ? Haven't you on a daily basis, have you, have you, as you've submitted yourself to him in prayer and the, and the reading of the word, haven't you, hasn't your life been turned upside down? And isn't it every day? Isn't it every day? Because it's supposed to be. He came to do the great work of a rescue mission. His primary purpose 
and, and the amazement that he brought was to rescue. And he was on a, the eternal, radical, ultimate rescue mission to save people. People who were destined for hell. People who were building their lives on sand. People who were not listening to God's word and obeying. People that were in complete and total rebellion against God. He came to save us because that's me. And that was you before he saved you. He came to be that sinless man because we're not sinless. Right? I mean, he came to receive the storm of God, the wrath, the full fury of God so that we wouldn't have to. He came to be forsaken completely and totally by his father in hell so that you could be received completely and totally by his father in heaven. But being amazed is not sufficient. Simply finding Jesus, which is what the 84% of people who profess Christ or identify, those people, they find him amazing. They find him unique. They find his teachings countercultural. And many like it just because it's, it's, it's against the culture. They find the teachings fantastic and, and, and supernatural. But none of that is sufficient. If you see Christ as this martyr, not sufficient. If you see him as this wise teacher, this rabbi, that you're not sufficient. If you see these teachings in the sermon as ethical, moral teachings that you're going to now try to live out on your own, not sufficient. Because being amazed falls woefully short of the infinite chasm that exists between a holy God and a sinner like you and me. In Matthew chapter 13, a few chapters later, we're told that Jesus, coming into his hometown, began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were, ekplaso, amazed. He's in his hometown, and they're amazed. And this is what they said. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? blue-collar guy. Isn't this, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't all of his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? They're amazed. And then they took offense at him. What? They took offense at him. Their amazement offended them. The Pharisees and scribes said they were amazed at his teachings and his power. Did it save him? Just the opposite. It led to a bitter and an anger and hatred of such that they went and they killed him. Even the masses, many of whom, without a doubt, sat there on that day listening to Christ teach. Many of them were, they paved that road in Matthew chapter 21 when he entered. These were the crowds that heard the teachings and saw the miracles. And these are the ones who grabbed the palm leaves and they said, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, these same people, utterly amazed by Christ in less than a week, cried out to Pontius Pilate to kill him. To crucify him. 
Pilate offers Barnabas. And they said, no, give us Barnabas. Kill that one. The one you were amazed by? Yes. And so what we see here is consistently throughout the gospel testimony, everybody was amazed. And they all wanted him dead. Everybody was stuck with, struck with astonishment. And it still ended in his death. In fact, they rejoiced over it. In order for the Sermon on the Mount to have its proper effect on you, as Christ intended when he preached it then, as he intends it now, when you hear it, it must go beyond amazement of how he taught and what he taught and the authority that he claimed when he taught. You must hear the one preaching. You must hear the incarnate God, the Son of God. You must hear the Messiah teaching these things. Because if you do, when you read Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, you'll read it completely different because it's God saying it and you believe it's God saying it. And therefore, they're not just trite, little churchy, you know, cliches. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's the word of God. It's Christ himself. What does that mean? Practically, what does that mean for us? Your amazement over what he said, the specific teachings must be cultivated into a desire, a deep desire to know what he said and to obey. Right? I mean, we must go from from being amazed by what he said to desiring to know what he said and then do it. And that's the transformation over your life in Christ. Uh, Be amazed. Be astonished. Good. At what he taught, yes. But those teachings have to then go deep. So that you, you know, you know that the teaching that he said is impossible for you apart from him. That you'll know that God is a holy God and you stand utterly condemned apart from Christ. That you know these things and you search them daily. Many brothers and sisters right now in this church going through a hard time this time of year. Just going through a hard time. Many of your brothers and sisters profess Christ. Many of them amazed by what he taught. But not feeding daily on what he taught. So they can know it and obey it. So much of what we go through in life. So many of our struggles. So many of our questions. So much of the anxiety and stress. Is a result of us being amazed but not knowing or knowing and not doing. Be amazed. But that amazement has to be cultivated into knowing and then doing what he said. Second thing, your amazement over how he taught must change into trust in how he taught. Right? I mean, we're amazed at the authority that he claimed. That amazement has to be transformed into simple trust that what he said was actually true. Right? That, that, that we not only hear it and obey it, but we believe with all the confidence that he preached it, that it is absolutely true. Every single word of it. And that you trust him, a complete trust, putting your faith and your hope in him. 
in his power to save us, in his power to sanctify us in our life, in his power one day to make us glorious and radiant and sinless before the Father. Yet the amazement in how he taught has to translate into trust in what he taught. Thirdly, the amazement over his authority must translate into submission. The claims are radical. He, I mean, he is the great I am. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the creator of all that is seen and unseen. He is the Redeemer. He is the Savior. He claims that rightfully. Why? Because he is. Being amazed over the authority claimed by Christ falls short of salvation. Submitting to the authority of Christ is saving grace. Submitting to that. I was utterly astonished again over these past several weeks over his claims. That does me no good unless I submit to those claims. Utterly taken back that he said, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. Blown away, honestly. Midweek studies going, this is unbelievable. But my astonishment over that falls short of what Christ desires. It's a submission to that. So the what needs to translate to desire, the how to trust, the authority to submission, and lastly, and I will close... The display that he exercised at Calvary for you, that love, that sacrifice, has to translate into gratitude and service. The astonishment over the what to desire, the astonishment over the how to trust, the astonishment over the authority to submission, and the astonishment over the love and sacrifice to gratitude and service, the practical working out of the gospel work on the cross in your life. When you, when you gaze upon the wonder of the cross, when you contemplate the broken body and spilled blood of your Savior, And not only the infinite sacrifice that was made to redeem you, but the love that was displayed in that moment for you. It can't just be amazing. It can't just be amazing grace. It has to be grace that moves you to gratitude and service to a life lived in light of the wondrous cross. where you surrender in your amazement. When your amazement over his love for you as displayed at Calvary is transformed into a daily, personal, passionate love for him. When that happens, and until that happens, you cannot say you know him, but when that happens... Daily, personal, intimate, reciprocal love for the Savior out of the love that he poured out for you, then you'll be able to sing the words of Isaac Watts with all sincerity. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt 
on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Your right response to this sermon taught by our Lord is nothing less than your soul and your life and your all. Anything less, no matter how amazing or astonished you find yourself, reveals that you have not heard what he has said. You have not heard how he has said it. You haven't heard the authority that he has claimed. But worst of all, you have not heard him You've not heard the preacher. You've not heard the son of God. Your soul, your life, your all. That's the only right response to this sermon. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you right now, as a sinner, this is not my response. This has not been my response. I have not over these past 35 weeks surrendered to you my soul, my life, my all. I pray you forgive me, Father. Forgive my brothers and sisters who have been astonished and amazed but not sanctified and made holy. Forgive us for falling short, for hearing the amazement of these teachings and not submitting to them. For hearing how you have taught them, Lord, and not trusting in you. For hearing the authority that you've claimed and not submitting to you as Lord and Savior and King. For hearing all these things and not being utterly captivated by you, first and last. Father, give us wisdom to see that You, the entire sermon is about you. All the teachings are about you. Direct our hearts and minds through this teaching and all of your sacred scripture back to you, back to your son. And let us, as Isaac Watts said so long ago, as we gaze upon the wondrous cross, submit our soul, our life, our all to you, for you alone are worthy. I pray we would see that now and live in accordance with it all the days of our life. In Christ's name.